think Bob is too unique in being able to convince Juanita that she was a little bit insane. How easily many of us were convinced that that was always our fault, how easily we ended up apologizing. But some of us took quite the opposite view, I think, that uh, we were always, always right, so far superior. Weren't we affected? And as the supposedly sober member of the parent of the family, didn't we also affect our children? The mother is more or less the focal point. Her attitude, her feelings, determine the feelings and attitudes of the children around her. And if we become confused in our thinking, what do we do to our children? And now let's hear from Cindy W. from Louisville. Proud of myself, I wasn't afraid until I got up here. <laughs> well, I might start by saying that uh, I'm Cindy, and I'm the daughter of a sober alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> I'm the oldest of nine children. We have um, quite a house full with the. Well, we have a St. Bernard dog, and he takes up enough room, and then the cat. <laughs> And then we have the cats and the birds, and we've got quite a combination, but they all get along. And so I get a chance to use my Altine every day, because with all the kids and being the oldest, I've got an awful lot of responsibility with them, and uh, so it kind of gets on me once in a while. Um, I don't really know when I began to notice my daddy's drinking. I think it was about when I started school, and they had the picnics at school, and uh, all the, Daddy always ran the dice booth and all, and all the other kids would bring their uh, fathers along, and their fathers would walk around with them, and my daddy stayed in the dice booth and drank, and it made me feel kind of funny. I was never really ashamed at that point. I just knew there was something a little different. Um, I felt closer to my mother. It seemed like that... Uh, Daddy was doing her wrong, that's the way I thought. Because we had uh, all the children, and she had to work one time for, oh, I think it was one summer. And I thought this was wrong. Uh, and then, as much as I felt close to my mother, and I thought I hated my father, uh, in a way, I hated my mother too. Because I can remember in the morning when Daddy would leave for work and we'd be getting ready for school, Daddy would always try to kiss Mom goodbye and she wouldn't let him. <laughs> so, I, I asked her one time, I said, why aren't you kissing your goodbye? And she said, okay, I'll try it one time. I really don't know how I felt about him. It seemed like they were both doing each other wrong, and I was in the middle of it. Poor little me, you know. I was getting worse then. And then I began to ask God, why? Why me? I mean, what did I do? And I began to feel sorry to myself that I was the oldest, and that uh, I, I had an alcoholic parent. Of course, at that time, he wasn't an alcoholic. He was just a drunk. <laughs> Mother seemed not to be able to understand me, and I was just all alone in the world. Um, I was very confused. I didn't, I didn't know how to feel about it. I didn't know whether I was supposed to hate my father or love him. I felt that it was my duty to hate him because he was doing us wrong. All the other fathers didn't do that. And so uh, I was really confused. I didn't know how to feel. I think mean, this was the insanity part of it because I was trying to be right by everyone else and not doing what I thought was right. Uh, when my daddy was sober, he was a different person. It seemed like he was, uh, he was kinder. 
he wasn't mad all the time. He, I wasn't, it seemed like that I was always the one, to me, that I was always the one that got on him. I'd say something and got on me for it. And uh, I had these, I had this cat, and he was just a kitten at the time. And he said that the alcoholic hurts the person or the things that the person loves most. And so uh, Daddy would come in at night, and if he didn't break the door down, which he sometimes did, he would uh, kick the cat. Well, um, when he was sober one time, he built a cat box for it, and I didn't know what to think. He kicked her and screamed at her and everything, and she was yelling and drunk, and when he was sober, he built her a box. <laughs> she didn't say it if he built it. Um, I remember one time when, uh, when we were moving, we, when we had to move from our house, which was one of my biggest resentments because I didn't want to move, uh, I, I drove home with Daddy. My sister and I climbed in the back of the car, and we were hiding under some covers in the back seat. And uh, Mama rode the other children home, and Pam and I were in the seat. And uh, we stopped, and we thought we were home, and we didn't say a word all the way. We were keeping it real quiet. We were going to surprise him. So uh, he didn't know we were in there at all, and he stopped his car. And when I, when I stood up, I saw where we were, and I just didn't know what to think. I thought, what if he stays in there at 2 o'clock? And so my sister, my sister and I, we were in there, and we were wondering what in the world to do. And my uncle walked across the street in a, oh, a whiskey store. They sold liquor there. And uh, <laughs> so... Um, we sat in the car for a while, and I thought, I said, well, Daddy, right now, he's pretending to be sober. He was going to AA, but he was pretending to be sober because I found the beer bottles all around. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, it never really dawned on me that he'd come right back out. So uh, just as soon as we started to get out, these people come out of the bar, and they were drunk, and they sat on the hood of the car, and they scared me to death. I didn't know what to think. And so we locked out the doors and rolled the windows up and started crying because we wouldn't get off the car. And we were singing all these crazy songs. And so uh, as soon as they finally left, my sister and I got out and uh, we walked across the street. And I had to explain to my uncle what I was doing out on Kingman Road in the middle of the night. So I called my mother and she came after us. And just as soon as she drove up, he got out, came out and got in the car. And when I got home, I heard Mom and Daddy upstairs. They were talking. They said, uh, Mama said that we were in the back of the car, and Daddy said, there weren't kids in that back of the car. I know that. And they got in a big argument over it. And <laughs> to this day, Daddy still doesn't remember who's sitting in that car. I resented drinking more than I resented my father. Uh, we didn't the idea that uh, we were always left alone all the time. It didn't seem like we got to do many things. But uh, I was into the drinking. I knew that this drinking was doing something to me. Because when he was sober, it kind of dawned on me that that night when we were in the car, that he wasn't natural. That, I mean, he would have known we were there. And he really didn't remember that we were there. And so I knew then the drinking was doing something to him. Of course, it wasn't doing anything to me. It was just doing something that, again, there wasn't anything wrong with me. Of course, I felt sorry for myself all the time. But uh, this is where the team came in. Uh, uh, the cat that Daddy kicked, now, even... And you can ask him, even when he does come up on the back porch from work from now, and the cat shies away from him. And it's so funny. But <laughs> he said it, he still does it. Still at home now, even though Daddy's sober, things are... I thought that when Daddy sobered up, everything would be just fine. But it wasn't. After he sobered up, I resented AA. 
because Mama and Daddy were going out all the time and leaving me home. And uh, I can remember when Daddy was drinking, Mama used to tell me all the time that he didn't love anybody but himself. And uh, this seemed to make sense to me. He didn't seem to love me or the other kids or anything, so uh, I took that as some what you might call a motto. He didn't love anybody but himself, and every time he do something, I'd just say it to myself, and it was kind of like a comfort almost, because I could say it. But uh, when Mama started in Al-Anon, when I come to her and t- complain to her and I tell her all these things that bother me and how sorry I felt for myself, she said, well, why don't you accept things you can't change? And, oh, I just hated this. I didn't want to preach that stuff to me. I, I, it was bad enough that her and Daddy were going all the time and not taking me, but she didn't have to come home and tell me all about it. And then she would tell me uh, a little things about Al-Anon. And I can remember one night after she had, I think it was first or second meeting, and my aunt had taken her. And um, she had come home, and I was still up. And she told me, she says, you know, I hate to admit this, I really do, because I'm so ashamed of it, but your father's an alcoholic. And it really hit me. I didn't, I didn't really know what an alcoholic was, and I don't think she did either. Because that's when I began to think. I said, oh, no, now everybody in the neighborhood will know. <laughs> As if they didn't know already, but I didn't, I didn't want them to know that my father was an alcoholic. And when they told me that my father had a disease, and Mama said he had a disease, I thought, now, that's pretty ridiculous. I've heard of funny things, but this one really takes it. And when it finally dawned on me that when Daddy was sober, he really didn't want to drink. I know that because he, he had told me once that he didn't want to drink. And then he broke his promise the next day. And that was the first time that my Daddy had ever said anything that had been personal to me and then that's when I realized that there was something wrong with that. So, uh, as I say, we moved, and my grandmother owned a house. Of course, I didn't know this. I, I knew it, but if anybody asked, it was our house, you know. My grandmother's just living with us. <laughs> that was the way it was. But um, I really looked forward to my grandmother living with us, but after she was there, it wasn't very nice because her and Daddy didn't get along, and she slept in our room, and opened the windows and all, and we got colds all through the winter. And so, <laughs> so we gave her a birthday present and fixed up the TV room and put her bed in there, and we gave her her own room. And she slept there for a while, and I, I can remember thinking back how wonderful I thought it was going to be. We were going to move. And then the last time we went back to the house to close it up, I remember walking down the stairs, and I said, and this is all Daddy thought that we're moving from this house. Of course, the idea that we had seven children in three bedrooms didn't matter to me, but uh, the idea that uh, Daddy had drank and that we didn't have the money to pay for the house anymore. So we moved in the other house, and uh, it was an old house, and we had a lot of remodeling done. And uh, so we, as we remodeled, we didn't things to put a hot water heater in, and there was one there, but it wasn't very good. And if Mommy washed clothes, then we couldn't take a bath unless we wanted to take one in cold water. And so uh, that was one thing I could really complain about. I'd come downstairs and I'd complain about the cold water and that you couldn't get any hot water in this house and that I hated these low creaky stairs and, oh, I could really complain about that house. And then we started remodeling on it, and right now it's bigger and much prettier, I think, than our other house, and it's certainly got better memories in it. Uh, I heard today one of the little Al King said, he said that uh, worry was like a rocking chair. You never got any place with it. And that was what I did. When Barry was sober, I still hadn't come into Al King yet. I'd been around and knew what it was, but there wasn't anything wrong with me. So uh, I didn't want to go with those kids. And so uh, one night, Daddy had been sober for a long time, and he came in, and he got mad about something and went back out. And that's when I started worrying, and that's when I started my bargaining prayer. I said, God, you keep him sober, 
and I'll do this for you. I'll do you a favor. And I, I worried that home night I was just sick because he hadn't come back, and he had gone in the driveway real fast in the car, and uh, I really worried about it, and that's when I realized how much Daddy sobriety meant to me. Of course, I wasn't going about it in the right way, but at least I realized it. And Daddy came back that night, and that's when I realized that there was something wrong with me. That Mommy told me, she says, well, don't worry about it. If he gets drunk, he'll get drunk. But if he stays sober, he'll stay sober, and it'll be God's will. Well, God's will never seemed to work with me. I mean, you know, it wasn't my will. But Daddy came back sober that night, and that's when I really started to be interested in it. And I wasn't resentful anymore about Mom and Daddy going to the meetings. I was glad because... I would rather have Daddy going out to meetings and leaving me home all the time than having him go out and get, getting drunk. And so we started an Alchine group at our Pleasure Ridge. And uh, this is my home group. I go to it all the time. And it's just done wonders to me, I think. Anyways, I know it's helped me. Uh, we meet every Friday night. And we have both boys and girls. We have them about, oh, about 6 to 12 almost every Friday night. Our sponsor is a wonderful person, and I really look forward to going to these meetings. It helped me. When I first came, I was going to come just to get the group started, to help them out, you know. And so when I got there, we, took, we were reading the steps, and when we hit that fourth step, taking an inventory, I didn't know what it was wrong. The only thing the word inventory meant to me is where Daddy always had to have inventory at work. They were always taking inventory, which kept him out real late. <laughs> so that's what, that's what inventory meant to me. And I had to stop and think, why do I need to take inventory? And uh, so I began to think, and I remember getting out a piece of paper one night, and I put a line down the middle, and I put bad and good. And I started with the good. And I put down one good thing, and then I started on the bad thing. And I put down resentment, because at this time I was realizing, I had realized that I resented Daddy and Mom going there. I'm really not that jealous. I don't get that jealous very easily. But uh, I think resentment and jealousy kind of run in in a way. And so I started listening to bad things, and I went on and on and on. <laughs> so I thought, no more of this. And so I, I went on, and I tried to take my inventory. I found out that I had thought and that I could cope with them 24 hours, that I could cope with my brothers and sisters. They're not really that bad, but uh, I could cope with them, and I could cope with myself for just 24 hours. I asked God to keep Daddy sober 24 hours if it be his will. I've learned to accept God's will. Sometimes his will doesn't work in with mine, but uh, I try to accept it. And another thing, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm really and truly grateful that my mother and father are in AA and Illinois because there are some Alexines that come and their parents aren't in AA or Illinois. And I feel sorry for them, but the only thing I can do, and the only thing that they can do, is accept God's will. I have an understanding now. I can understand Daddy's drinking. And if he ever did start drinking again, I think I'd be able to understand that. I've got this in our team. I wouldn't trade our team for anything. And I think one of the most important things that I've got out of our team are friends. You just can't call your school friends or anybody and tell them your problems about your parents. We don't talk about our parents, but of course people living together are our problems. And you can... <laughs> and I can call them up and talk to them. And this convention is one of the wonderful things. Just being here and being with the people. I haven't been in our team that long. And there's some people here that have been in an awful long time. And yet they accept you. 
They don't look down on you, making sure you just weren't there. I like to think of AA and Al-Anon as a big book, and Al-Teen is a big book. Each one's a separate chapter, and each page is a different person, all just important as the next. And we're all bound together by some wonderful things, and this is a fellowship and understanding and love. These are three things that I've gotten out of Al-Teen, and AA and Al-Anon. And I'd like to say one thing. I'm proud of my father. Not because he's an alcoholic, but because he's a sober alcoholic. Thank you. Bob says you can hear me all over the block at home. <laughs> uh, I'm Bob's wife and Cindy's mother. <laughs> My name is Juanita Westall, and I'm the wife of an alcoholic. Thanks to God and this wonderful program, we're all a family. We do have nine children. My ninth baby was born on my eighth legal birthday. I'm a leap year baby. <laughs> but, uh, when uh, I couldn't go into my full story because it'd take me a very long time to tell you that all man delivery. But uh, <laughs> he was usually drunk. That's why I would want to tell about him. But uh, after our fourth child was born, this was, they were all four girls. And this was when I began to look for reasons for his behavior. Uh, and of course, I gave him many reasons for his behavior. I told him he didn't love me, that he wasn't a man, and all the usual things that I've heard girls in our hometown say. But uh, after this fourth girl was born, I really began in earnest to look for a reason. There had to be a reason. And uh, I thought that I had found it, that it was the fact that we didn't have a boy. And... Uh, so uh, I didn't consult God or Bob about this. I went about having a boy. And I... <laughs> a year later, our son was born. And this was uh, our fifth child. And I was so proud and so happy. And uh, I waited in the hospital room. And Bob was so proud and happy, too, that he went out and got drunk. And I didn't see him for a few days. But then I rationalized this, uh, this drunk. I thought, well, he, uh, he's, the baby's just a baby. It's not a boy. My husband was very interested in athletics. So I thought when he gets bigger, Daddy will take more interest in him and he'll take him fishing and hunting and play ball with him. And this will be what will keep him from drinking and make him stay home. And uh, so then a year later, uh, this one, uh, God didn't consult me on. We had a sixth child and it was a boy. And uh, when this boy was born, well, uh, it was another year and another girl. And this little boy was getting older and bigger. And I was still looking for excuses and reasons and trying everything. I wanted it so desperately to be my fault why he drank. I wanted it to be something I was doing wrong so that I could change it. Then I could sober him up. Um, I knew nothing of AA or Al-Anon. Uh, I did know one thing. I knew it was the first drink that he took that started all the trouble. It wasn't when he got drunk that the trouble started, because the first drink that he took, I immediately changed, just like a chameleon. I was, from a loving wife that was trying very hard to make a marriage work, I would turn into a true and scream at him and throw things and... Uh, even cursing. And these things, I'm so sorry to say, I did in front of the children. For a long time, I had tried to be that kind of wife that never disagrees with the husband in front of the children and always discusses disciplinary problems in behind closed doors. But uh, I didn't think the bar room was a place to discuss them, so we just <laughs> got to the point where we didn't discuss anymore. Uh, he always came in for supper. Why, I don't know. Because he walked in the door, and uh, he got the same thing for supper every night, hot tongue and cold shoulder. <laughs> and I would just be furious with him when he walked in that door because I could smell which tavern he'd been in. 
and I tell him so, and I was usually right, but he'd deny it. And, you know, knowing so well that I was right, he could make me apologize for accusing him of being in a tavern. Uh, holding these three jobs down, uh, he had a whip over my head. Security meant everything to me. They, feeding these children was a big job, and uh, paying the grocery bill was even bigger. So security meant a great deal, and when he said that uh, he had an appointment, who was I to quibble about whether it was really an appointment or go out and get drunk? Because if it was an appointment, it meant money and food on the table. And if it was a drunk, it just meant I'd raise some more cane when he got in. And I didn't mind this too badly. At this particular point, I enjoyed these go-arounds. I had gotten to the point where that was my only relief from the tension I built up all day long. <laughs> I started in the morning when he walked out that door, and as she said, would turn my cheek. Uh, I, I started right then, knowing uh, inside what it was going to be like when he came home that night. I never gave him a chance. I had already uh, told him what I expected, and he never disappointed me. Uh, <laughs> When uh, this, uh, getting back to this little boy, when he was uh, getting up and talking and walking and doing things, uh, it was his birthday, and I was so excited about it, I went down and got him one of these little electric razor things, and uh, I gave it to him, and uh, he opened it up, and when he looked inside, he said, what is it? And I said, it's a razor, honey, and shave with it. And the little fellow stuck his leg up on his chair and pulled his pants leg up and started shaving his leg. <laughs> I knew then this little boy wasn't going to sober up his daddy. <laughs> That's when I went for help. I went up to this time. I had never told anybody that there was any kind of problem in my home. When uh, girlfriends or neighbors would question Bob's uh, many absences, I would tell them that he had to work hard. After all, we had a big family, and I lied about all these things because I had too much false pride. I know now it's not pride. That word pride is what we take in ourselves uh, and in our children, but this was a false pride. It was a sinful pride because I didn't want anybody to think I wasn't the perfect wife and the perfect mother, and that I couldn't keep uh, my own husband at home. So when I went to father, uh, I, he did not know anything about alcoholism either. I, I, I know this for a fact. He's told me so since then. We went, uh, I went there, and he agreed with me. He did the worst thing possible. He agreed with me that Bob wasn't living up to his responsibilities. And from that day on, I really went at Bob Hammer tooth and nail. I let him know every minute of the day what a wonderful person I was and what a louse he was. <laughs> and I did this in front of the children. I taught them to dislike him. I made them ashamed of their love for him. Uh, I didn't know that right then. The only thing I knew was that they should respect me. After all, I was doing so much for them. Uh, not for myself. It was all for the children. And uh, Daddy wasn't doing anything except feeding them right at that particular time and clothing them. But I didn't give Bob credit for anything good. I just gave him credit for everything that was wrong and bad. Even sometimes if I didn't have change for the ice creams, I'd say, well, that's your Daddy's fault. He probably has got all the money down to tavern drinking. And this is the way I, I was, and I'm not proud of it. But I believe that I had to be this way in order to find the help that I did find. I had to go all the way down myself. Not being of the best character, living under these circumstances, didn't make me a saint. It did just the opposite. Uh, I just couldn't cope with it. I was so lost and so lonely, and I couldn't, I couldn't even find help where I thought it was. Uh, in, in my church, in my faith. And now when I look back on it, I, didn't, I wasn't in my church, and I didn't have any faith. And yet, at that time, I blamed the church for the failing, not myself. I, uh, as my husband stated, my brother-in-law had gone into AA, and we all agreed he needed it. And uh, but we knew nothing about it. 
But I was the only one in the family who wanted to know what it was. Even his mother and father were ashamed of it. And they tried their very best to keep it very quiet. But I was just full of questions. I wanted to know what was this thing that could do this for him. And uh, so I went to an AA meeting. And Bob accompanied me that night. And when I got there, uh, the first thing that happened just floored me. An alcoholic lady walked up to us, and she patted Bob on his shoulders, and she says, Well, so you're here to see if you can get some help for yourself. And then she turned to me, and she says, Are you going to stay here with us drunk, or are you going upstairs and learn how to live with us drunk? And nobody would ever called him a drunk in public. <laughs> and I, I called him many things behind the doors of our home, but I didn't like anybody calling him a drunk in public. And I was floored, and I just stood there waiting for his reaction and boiling up inside. How dare she? Of course, he was, but uh, <laughs> he just didn't do this sort of thing in nice company. But I stayed at that AA meeting, and I heard an alcoholic man talk. He had a large family in our area, and all through his talk, he talked about his wonderful wife and how she had stood by him and all the hell she had gone through. And I thought, I have found my home. This is for me. Anything that can make that drunken husband man appreciate all I've been through is what I'm going to get from him. <laughs> and so, boy, I went at this AA thing tooth and nail. If they had put it in a bottle, I'd have spoon-fed it to him. I just had to have AA for him. But they wouldn't let me get it. They kept shipping me off to the Al-Anon room. And I, I went peacefully because uh, they kept saying, uh, a change in your attitude may help your alcoholic find help in the AA program. So I gave it a whirl. I changed my attitude. Up to this time, it had been Katie bar the door when he came in. But then after that meeting that Friday night, when he came home on Saturday for supper, I said, hello, honey, how was today? And he thought he was in the wrong house. <laughs> But these changed attitudes didn't last too long, because he'd go and get drunk anyway. And it was a battle. I went to two meetings a week in order to keep my arm on over two days at a time. <laughs> but uh, I was struggling with it, and I was going with one purpose in mind, and that was to sober him up. There was nothing wrong with me that his getting sober wouldn't cure. If they just took the drinking problem out of our home, I'd never complain again. And I told God this every morning. I went to 6 o'clock Mass, and I'd sit there, kneel there at that kneeler, and I'd tell him, you do this for me, and I'll do that for you. I'd make novenas. Uh, I'd tell him, you know, if you, do, if you keep him sober today, I'll make a nine-week novena. And I would keep my side of the bargain, but he didn't. And I couldn't understand this. All my life I had been taught that if you wanted anything bad enough and you were willing to work hard enough and put enough into it, you could get it. Well, here I had been working so hard at getting him sober, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And I never really paid any attention to that wait long enough business. I didn't know what that meant. I thought you had to get everything you wanted right now. So when uh, Al-Anon was trying to work on me, I, I know that some of it was getting through because I was um, using the slogans to get through the days, which were getting increasingly harder. Uh... I was expecting an eighth child, and his drinking was still very, very bad. And the children had been affected by this so badly, they were actually failing in school. So when this, when this happened, and it all came on me at a report card time, I left the school talking to the teachers, and I went straight in and filed for divorce. Uh, I had done the first thing on my own that Al-Anon tried to tell me, and that was make a decision and to stick by, the, stick by my guns and be willing to take the consequences for it. I envisioned many things, but none of them were a sober husband. I was just sure that he would leave and there would never be another, uh, never even another chance to see him again. But this was my decision and I was willing to take it. When uh, he did come home that night, uh, 
and broke the door down and came in. Well, uh, Mother called the police, and he took the gun upstairs, and Mother got her gun out. I believe that was when I sank to the lowest bottom that, that I ever cared to go to, and I hope I never get any lower. Because in that moment, on those stairways, the thought passed through my mind, if I let her pass me and they shoot each other, I won't have any more problems. I really felt this way. <laughs> it was a mother-in-law that was, I mean, my mother, and I was an only child, and I loved her very dearly. But these last months had been just, just too much. And when, uh, when, this, when this particular thing happened, it was just a fleeting thought because I did stop her and I did go to the phone and call AA. And uh, they came and when they, they put Mother to bed with a sleeping pill, by the way, that's how they got quite, her quieted down. And when they left, I, I was all alone. And uh, I, I really didn't have anything to be alone with. I, I had been going down on. But uh, that's all I'd been doing, was going to sober him up. And when I got to this point where I was so hopeless and so beaten down, there was just, I couldn't do anything myself that night. Of myself, I was tired. And I turned to the program then, and I took the first step. I admitted that I was tired of alcohol. I don't need to tell you my life is unmanageable. But... Then I, I really started trying to work down on programs in my life, not Bob's. And it, it was a growing process, but it was so slow and so painful, I didn't like it. That fourth step was one I skipped over every time I read them. I didn't want to take it. There was still nothing wrong with me. My husband was in AA, and he was going strong at it. And I had heard, I'd been to many meetings, and I had heard all these other women tell the pitfalls that a, a wife of an alcoholic can uh, face. And when it, uh, one night, all the children were running crazy at bedtime, and I was chasing one and pinning diapers on another and giving aspirin to one, and I just sat down on the middle floor and started crying. And I said, I'm no better off now than I was when he was drinking. In fact, I've got three more kids than I had then. And it hit me that I had heard this at an Al-Anon meeting, that Al-Anon wife was jealous of AA, and here I was, jealous of AA because he was going to meetings. Everybody was patting good old Bob on the back and telling what a good job he was doing, and there I was. So I, right at this time, too, I had stopped going to my Allen. I mean, I was too busy. I had uh, eight children, and uh, I, you just uh, don't get babysitters and leave this many children. And uh, I was just too busy, and then I, the new baby was uh, fairly young. And that's where all this thinking, thinking had started, and I wasn't aware of that until later. But by going back to the meetings, by going this time for myself and truly for myself, no one else, We've been able to find a great deal of happiness in this program. We have friends now that uh, there's no way of expressing our gratitude towards them. In fact, uh, they knew I was going to talk, and they're still here. <laughs> but uh, it, it's just something that uh, had to come slowly to me. I had to... Be, have everything taken away from me, very similar to the alcoholic, because up to that point I was too proud to admit that I couldn't handle things myself. I've learned that the same loving God that looked after me and saw me through those terrible days watches over me and sees me through these wonderful days today and uh, will see me through tomorrow, I know. I've learned so many things in al -Anon. I couldn't begin to tell them all to you. We don't have the time. But uh, I do know that uh, the one thing that kept me coming back to the al -Anon meetings was people telling me to come back. If you don't like what you hear, then leave it. And if you do like what you hear, then take it and use it. And this is what I've tried so hard to do, to take the things from the al -Anon meetings and to absorb all the things that I get. 
from these means and to use it with the children and end in our life together. It's been a wonderful life since then. We attended a conference down in Paducah last November, and my husband was a pinch hitter speaker there. And some of the wonderful things that came from that conference, the, the friends and the peers, how can you tell those people that you had a wonderful time and cried every minute of the time? We cried our way right through that conference. It was just tremendous. We, uh, up until yesterday, I had a, I didn't even know I had this fault. Um, I was so proud of the fact that as many conferences as we've attended, I had never missed a session. And I was just complaining at the top of my voice that I didn't like this conference because I had to miss sessions. <laughs> I couldn't be every place at once. And a little lady over at the Royal York patted me on the shoulder and said, we have to do something to deflate your ego. It hurts to have your ego deflated, <laughs> especially in public. But I just want you to know that if you're new here and you don't like what I said or Dorothy said, then go back to another meeting. We're not the only ones in this program because the things I said are strictly my opinion. I hope that I've been able to tell you or to show you or in some way to let you know how much Al-Anon means to my family and to me. Al-Anon is a way of life to me. It is my very life. I have never gone to an AA meeting when there was an Al-Anon meeting available. I know that Al-Anon is for me. I know that AA is for God. And this I let him do, work his AA his own way. And I work my Al-Anon my own way. And I just want to thank you for the privilege of being up here, and I want to say that I think this has been a wonderful conference, even if I couldn't get to all the stations, and thank you. Thank you, Juanita. And now we'll move right along and call on Father Fred from the Lackawanna AFD. Father Fred? I'd like to tell you if you have a date at the Hotel York at 12.30, you're not going to make it. <laughs> My name is Father Fred, and I'm a member of the Lackawanna Island Group of Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. And if you uh, have never seen an Al-Anon priest before, we're breaking your record this morning. <laughs> For an hour this afternoon. And I feel very privileged to be invited here to participate in this program this morning. I think what you came to hear, you have already heard. And that is how AA Al-Anon and al works for the family. We've had excellent talks here this morning from a mother, from a wife, from a father, and from a daughter on how this way of life that was given to us some 30 years ago by Bob and Bill can be applicable to anybody and everybody, and so it has been in many lives, including mine. We don't want to detain you too long, but uh, I would like you to know that it's not easy to stand up here and say that I'm a member of Al-Anon. Uh, this has took a lot of work. Uh, I don't drink, so they wouldn't let me in AA. And I have a few too many years to be an Alateen. And they didn't want to let me an Alateen because I wasn't married. <laughs> but it says that the only requirement for membership is that there be, that you be a relative or a friend uh, of an alcoholic. And I've got thousands of friends who are alcoholics. And just to give you a little idea of how this all began, I must tell you how delighted I am to be here with the family from Kentucky because I belong to an American missionary community. Some of those initials behind my name in the program might confuse you. 
That is the Latin abbreviation for the missionary servants of the Most Holy Trinity. And while we were a young, we are a young community, and actually there were only three priests in the outfit when I went south, we worked mostly in the southern part of the United States, and one year after I was ordained, it was actually 13 months, and on the 13th day of June, I'm not superstitious, but this may have had something to do with it, I was missioned to a little parish in southeastern Alabama. I say little, it was numerically small, it was geographically large, it extended over some 3,500 square miles. We had 65,000 people in the area, but we only had three dozen Catholics. There was a rumor going around we were outnumbered. <laughs> and I guess just to make it interesting, the dear Lord decided to touch in an alcoholic, and it was a she. And the best way we describe this dear lady is by telling you she was a doozer of a boozer. This was back during the days when we had gas coupons and the clergy had more gas coupons than the laity was during the war. And when you only have three dozen Catholics, you don't have too much to do along ecclesiastical lines. So besides running the Catholic parish, I ran the Catholic taxi cab. Uh, when people would like to go shopping in Columbus, Georgia, it was only 48 miles up the road, why they'd call me up to go up to shop in Columbus or Montgomery, uh, 88 miles in the other direction to go to the Antestian Hospital. But this dear woman used to call me in the middle of the night, about 2.30 in the morning, from a hockey town. Now, down in Alabama, if you're a Yankee, that's one strike. If you're a Catholic, it's two strikes. If you're a priest, you're a foul ball. So they don't have much to hit on. And this guy wasn't doing my reputation much good at all. As I say, she would awaken me while the phone called about 2.30 and say, Father, y'all come get me, I'm sick. <laughs> Boy, she was sick, no doubt about it. But what you have to understand that is in these little southeastern Alabama towns, the head of hopper of the town is a telephone operator. <laughs> and so the next morning, when the milking would be done, into the switchboard would go all the plugs and out would go the message, y'all know who called that Catholic priest last night? And she was just as drunk as a hoot owl. He asked him to come, uh, her to come get him. And she, they never did, she never said that I didn't go. She just said I got all these calls in the middle of the night from the hockey town. And so it was very difficult to try to help this poor woman. We had her down to the house. I tried everything I'd been taught in the seminary. We tried uh, taking pledges. Oh, she took pledges. She was good at that. She memorized the pledge. She had taken so many times. And she'd come down to make visits, and she'd say the rosary, and she'd uh, light the candles. She lit so many candles, I couldn't get fire insurance on the church. <laughs> well, it really went from bad to worse because it seemed like the harder we prayed, the drunker she got. And I have to insert into my story right here that she also had a husband who was an alcoholic, and I'm very happy to tell you he was a Baptist. <laughs> well, we sure don't want you to get any wrong ideas with all these Catholics up here this morning, and you might get an idea that there's a connection between the Catholic Church and AA, and there really isn't, or Al-Anon or Alateen. <laughs> AA and Al-Anon and Alateen are people of all religions or no religion. The only connection between the Catholic Church and AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen is, you must admit, we've donated most generously to the membership. <laughs> well, I, I must admit, too, that it was not my doing. This poor lady found AA on her own on the 6th day of January, 1945. I first heard of AA on, in December of the 1945 when the chairman of the local group came to see whether I wouldn't be interested in introducing or trying to induce this woman to join AA. And down in Alabama in the middle of the week, the only people that come to the door of a rectory of a Catholic church is a, a drunk or a Yankee. Well, this guy wasn't a Yankee, but he was drunk. And he told me he was the chairman of the AA group, and I thought, brother, I, I got a jag on spelling his breath. I thought, if this is all it's doing for you, I put the literature in the waste paper basket right away, and that was my introduction to AA. Uh, we often talk about this because he became sober soon after that and still is. But this woman and her husband joined AA in January of 1946. And last January, thanks be to God, she celebrated 19 years of sobriety. He did us an inestimable favor. 
Nine years after he was sober, he tried the noble experiment and was not successful. Have you ever heard of anyone who was? And he's now back ten years sober again. So we're very grateful to God for that privilege of being introduced to AA to worry in our priesthood. I guess they got wind of the fact that I was going to AA meetings in the South because my superiors then moved me from Alabama to Pennsylvania, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, and placed me in charge of a home for the rehabilitation of alcoholics, and it was there that I met Al-Anon. And I would like to tell you who are here this morning from AA that whether or not you like us, whether or not you understand us, whether or not you can tolerate us, as long as we live, we shall be eternally grateful to AA for what we have in Al-Anon. It was Lois, God bless her, she just left. And the women who were around AA in the early days, who saw in this great philosophy of life that Bob and Bill presented to the world in 1935, a way of life that could be applicable to anybody and everybody, that wanted to accept the very famous challenge that was made centuries ago to know thyself. Because the trouble with the world today is that most people don't know themselves, not their whole self, all their virtues, yes, their abilities, yes, but not their faults and failings. And not knowing them, they cannot eliminate them from their lives, and therefore they cannot grow to be the people that they wish other people thought them to be and that they themselves would like to be. But Bob and Bill came up with a program, and we thought this was such a great program, this AA program, that we borrowed from it every blessed thing we could. We borrowed from it your 12 steps. We borrowed from it your serenity prayer. We borrowed your mottos. You know, they say that the greatest form of flattery is imitation, and you should be really flattered because we even have a card the same size as yours that comes out of headquarters. This is the AA card. This is the al card. And on this is our preamble, our 12 steps, and the serenity prayer. And for this, again, I say we are eternally grateful. Everything we could borrow except your drinking problem, and I would like you to know that some of us are working on that. Again, of all the things that you have, we have borrowed from you, perhaps the one that is most impressive to me as a Catholic priest, and I feel like very ecumenical when I say this because the thing I'm talking about was written by a Lutheran theologian, is the Serenity Prayer. I like it because it contains the goal of not only AA and Al-Anon and Alateen, but all three together. For the thing that we all pray for in Al-Anon even as you pray in AA and the children play, pray in Alatine, is serenity. This is our goal. The beginning for the AA member is sobriety. Most of us in Alanon have that, at least we keep telling ourselves. But our goal, even as is yours, is serenity, and this is most important, because serenity is peace. And peace, says St. Augustine, is the tranquility of order. And what we found in our lives in Alanon when we met you who are alcoholics, either in our homes or in our work, in our families, was a total lack of order. Because there's nothing quite as disorderly as a, an active alcoholic's home. Physical disorder, material disorder, financial disorder, economic disaster. And what we pray for is what you pray for and work for, and that is serenity. And I thought this morning in these few minutes allotted to me, I might tell you how we in Alamon try to apply this prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The most difficult thing to change is the fact that you were married to an alcoholic or that he is your father or your son or your daughter or your brother or your sister. You cannot change it. And the wiser you are, uh, uh, as soon as you accept this, the wiser you are. You cannot uh, deny the fact that you cannot change the fact that the money that should have been saved for the children's college education has gone down the drain and bar that your daughter's big wedding will never come about because you have no, no money to finance such a thing, or that your son may not ever have the companionship that Juanita was talking about, a father who will take the son fishing and to ball games and boating, that this has been gone because of the drinking of the alcoholic spouse is something that we must accept. God grant me serenity. It brings a lot of peace to accept these things that we cannot change. You know, sometimes it gets awfully ridiculous how people are re refuse to accept the things they cannot change. I remember on one occasion a gal coming to talk to me at an Al-Anon meeting. 
She was a Catholic. She jumped the traces. She had three husbands, and she was consistent. She had three children by each of the three husbands. But amid many tears and in the middle of the counseling session, she says to me, I should have been a nun. All I could think of was this is a hell of a time to think of it. This is a paramount example of an inability to accept the things you cannot change. <laughs> and then all in all, I think the big lesson we have to learn is that the second phrase, the courage to change the things that you can, means primarily and foremost us, me, I, you. This is the only one thing in the whole wide world that we are sure we can change. It's us, me. And this is a hard lesson to learn. Most people who come to Al-Anon will, if you will excuse the expression, appear, they are, if you will excuse the expression, physically, psychologically, and spiritually pooped <laughs> from trying to make a saint out of an alcoholic. If they can only get him to stop drinking, if they can only get him to work, if they can only get him to go to church on Sunday, to wear a necktie, they don't go to church on Sunday, but get him there, and life is a success. They have become so absorbed in straightening him out that they completely neglect themselves. And when they come in to Al-Anon, oh, just loaded to the hilt, with a desire to find the solution to make him stop drinking, and we say, we're not interested in him, he's an AA, how about you, or he should be an AA, how about you? Oh, brother, here comes the water complex. Me? Poor little me? Why, if you live with a bum like I do, why, let me tell you about him. We don't want to hear about him. We want to hear about you. And it usually takes about three meetings before they get the point that we're not going to talk about the alcoholic. We're only interested in them and the problems that they have accrued to them because they have had to live or have lived for a while with an alcoholic. It is difficult to change attitude, to sell the disease concept, which is the purpose of Al-Anon. It is very difficult to get these people, and I think we'll need to mention it, to make a fourth step. If you think you have a trouble in the uh, AA with this fourth step, a searching and a fearless small inventory of ourselves in Al-Anon, we have perfected taking the drugs fourth step for years. We got his inventory down to the last letter. Every sentence, every comma, ask us anything about him, we can tell you. Us, this is a brand new experience, and a difficult experience, an embarrassing, embarrassing experience. Another thing that the girls don't like in Illinois when they first come in is that word in the second step, sanity. Oh, he's the crazy one, not me. You get, you get, let us get this straight. Now, he's the crazy one. And we start, to say, we start to say to them, well, what have you been doing to help him to stop thinking? And they'll tell you, well, we holler at him every night. We hit his booze and we watered his booze. We threatened to go home to mother. He wished he would, but he didn't. He wished he'd go. Except the divorcing. And then, of course, the capital sin of all capital sins, you poured the booze down the sink. <laughs> gallons and gallons of Pat's Blue Ribbon and Shenley. And what was, this, what was the result of the, uh, the ultimate end of this? You wound up with a cellar full of alcoholic rats and you still have an alcoholic husband. <laughs> Is this same behavior? How crazy can you get? They're saying, Alan, on why can't he wise up? Every time he drinks, he wrecks a car. When the, when the alcoholic does sober up, joins AA, comes into the program, he can say, how crazy can she be? For 19 years, she beat on my back, threatened to go home to mother, poured my booze down the sink, and I never stopped drinking. So insanity is quite evident in the lives of the non-alcoholic if we stop and think about it. And we, too, have to make amends to those we have harmed, and I guess primarily it would be the children. The innocent children of the family of the alcoholic. We're not knowing about the problem, about the sickness, why daddy or mother does what they do, suffers a great deal of embarrassment, many psychological, physiological difficulties and uh, harm. This is why we need Alateen. They mentioned to us, and we mentioned this in the book that you purchased here today, we get a very big shock when we hear there are five million alcoholics in the United States and we say, schnook, 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 this is awful. Five million, five and a half million, maybe six million alcoholics, isn't that awful? But the NCA comes along and says you have four people sick for every alcoholic. Four times six is 24 million people in the United States that are sick because of alcoholism. Not their alcoholism, the alcoholism of another. Okay, six, eight million of these are the husbands and wives. The other 18 million are the kids. 
They're the ones that are suffering most. They're the ones for whom we are doing the least. In direct proportion, the greatest potential for membership has Alateen, 15 to 17 million. Al-Anon would be second and AA would be third, and we know that the greatest fellowship and membership is AA, second is Al-Anon, and Alateen is just getting off the ground. And so we need it, and your children need it. Your children, yes, your children. Because the biggest obstacle to the growth of Alateen are parents. Parents in AA and Al-Anon. Parents who do not understand that their children have problems and will have problems for the rest of their lives unless they too have an opportunity to know something about alcoholism and to know something about themselves. And this is the essence of AA and Al-Anon and Alateen. Education. In regards to alcoholism and in regards to you. And your children have been afflicted because you have been affected. And they need Alateen. It is very strange to understand why parents who are in Al-Anon and AA would object to their children going to Alateen. They you have heard here this morning that the greatest thing in the lives of this young family is this program. The greatest thing in your life is AA, in your life is Al-Anon. Were it not for this fellowship, you would not be here today. Were it not for this fellowship, you would not have the happiness, the serenity, the peace that you have today. Why deny your children what is the most precious possession that is yours? You know why I get so peed on this? I was to the AA, uh, Alan, uh, Alateen Convention, the Eastern Seaboard Convention, two weeks ago today. 147 young people, they're not kids, they're young adults, were there. They're young adults because most of them have had to assume the responsibility of adults, even as Cindy said today, take care of the, the, younger, the uh, younger children in the family. They've had to make decisions because mom and dad were not there to make them for them. They grow up before their time. And, well, you heard Cindy this morning. A perfect example of a mature young lady, not a kid or a child, an alateen. And we need more of it. So much more of this. You know, when I go out as a Catholic priest, I get called into many homes where there's an alcoholic problem because Fred's the guy that works with the drunks. So all the priests call me up, come down and talk to this guy, will you, Fred? If I go down there and I get talking to this, I must admit this is an honest program, that when I go up out on these contacts, it can't be 12-step calls because I'm not a member. But when I go out on these contact calls, I, I always go armed with an alcoholic anonymous member in the car. He sits out there. And when I make my pitch and I get a glimpse, a glimmer of hope out of the eye, eye of the alcoholic, I say to him, Would you, have you ever tried AA? You know where the next uh, noise comes from? It's the little woman who's standing behind the chair and will say, Oh, no, Father, not that. He's not that bad, Father. No, Father. Maybe a pledge, Father. A little holy water, Father, but not AA, Father. <laughs> and the reason for this is she doesn't know beans about AA, and she doesn't like it. If he goes into AA and he gets into the program, and I go down and I say to the little woman, how about coming to Alan on here? say, not that. That cat calling session, no, sir. But I don't want all those old hands to pull the alcoholics to pieces. No, sirree. I would like you AA members here to know today that if there's any Al-Anon group in which the members talk about the alcoholic, this is not because of Al-Anon, this is in spite of Al-Anon. That is not the purpose of our existence. <laughs> and I don't like to deflect your ego, but you're not the only people that have problems. We've got a few of our own to talk about. So we've got a lot to talk about that besides you. You might be the reason we're there, but we've got an awful lot of cleaning up to do. And we never knew this before. And so too the children. When you say to the mom and the dad, now how about kids going to Alateen? Well, I don't like them going down there and talking about their parents. They don't talk about their parents, as Cindy told you. They've got problems. They've got insecurities. They've got emotional problems. Neurotic problems. They become very nervous because of the tensions in the home. So they've got a lot to learn too. And it's a shame that you would deprive them of this privilege. We've got a lot of children in this country who need Alateen, and I hope that you will go home and see that a group has started in your hometown, wherever that might be. Change the things you can. It takes courage, it takes gumption, it takes intestinal fortitude, but you can do it because they did it. And that's why you came here, to learn what you might better do to improve this new way of life that you have adopted for yourselves in this program. And then the wisdom to know the difference. And Al-Anon, I think the greatest wisdom that we need to learn 
in regards to things we can change and we can't change is that never, ever, can we change an alcoholic? Nobody can change an alcoholic but the alcoholic. Not the wife or the husband or the mother or the father or the sister or the brother. Do you know, my dear friends, that not even God himself will change an alcoholic unless an alcoholic wills to be changed? This is the privilege that we have as human beings, an intellect and a will, an intellect by which we can know right from wrong and a will by which we can choose to do right or wrong. And if an alcoholic doesn't will to be changed, not even God will change him. And so that's a real important lesson for us to learn in Al-Anon. And we are wise when we do. We can change us. And when we change us, even as was emphasized here this morning, exemplified here this morning, sometimes the alcoholic will follow suit. Even as in the case of Juanita and Bob, in our group back in Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, we have five or six members who first came to Al-Anon, and because they changed, the alcoholic got the drift. We just couldn't figure what happened to that little woman. All of a sudden, she's off his back. All of a sudden, the meals are on time, and they're hot. All of a sudden, even the beds are made. I don't know what happened to her. And she brings home a lot of these foolish little packets that he uses to keep the screen door from squeaking, uh, <laughs> puts under the flower pot on top of the piano. But then that day, he's in the john, and he has to have something to read, and that's all that's there. And he reads it, and he becomes curious, and he goes to AA. But we're never sure of this. This, again, is but the grace of God. And so, we are grateful, again. We are grateful to AA for this prayer that we are barred from them. We are grateful to AA that they allow us to participate in their conference here in Toronto today and as they did five years ago in Long Beach and ten years ago in St. Louis. We feel real privileged to be a part of this great conference. I feel privileged to be allowed to come here. We are grateful. We are very grateful to God. And in keeping with the theme of this conference, we feel we have a great responsibility as members of Al-Anon to try to assist many, many more people to come into this fellowship and enjoy the privileges and the blessings that we are barred from AA. We feel responsible to try to induce more and more mothers and fathers, and particularly those who are in AA and Al-Anon, to assume their responsibility to see that their children, too, can adopt this new way of life that will lead us to a great degree of serenity here, and please God, an eternity of serenity hereafter. Thank you all, and God bless you.